Hello, everybody. This is Sean Cuddy from Room 9, and I have the awesome privilege to introduce to you this second installment of the Know Our Leaders Project with Horizon Health Services. If you guys didn't check out the first episode, make sure you do that. I sat down with a wonderful woman by the name of Colleen Babcock. Definitely check that out. It was an awesome episode, just as this is also an awesome episode. And my conversation in this episode is with a wonderful human being by the name of Jim Prosser. He is the supervisor for the treatment courts for Horizon Health Services. And basically what that means is he is kind of the communicator between the court and the clinical staff. And he's just almost like a bridge to be able to help communication go smoothly. He sits in on all the courts, all the people who are in drug court from Horizon Health Services. He's part of that. He gets to talk and he gets to put his input in and really has a very important role. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. It was great. He talks about his passions. He talks about his role. He talks about what he does, what his duties are, and et cetera, et cetera. Really quickly, I have been involved with Horizon Health Services for quite some time now. I was actually in their long-term inpatient facility in Sanborn, New York, Horizon Village for almost almost four months I was there. So I have gotten to know the staff at this company for quite some time, and they're really just an awesome, awesome treatment provider that just really wants to focus on hope and healing for individuals, for their families, whether you're dealing with substance use disorder or a mental health disorder, they are here to really just help out knowing that the stakes have never been higher. And if you have read a newspaper, been reading articles online, turned on the television, you know the stakes are very high right now. I mean, this the disease of mental illness and substance use impact families in every neighborhood, in every community, in every home. You are hard-pressed to find somebody who has not been affected by these things in some way, shape, or form. In my experience with Horizons, they really just, they offer a person-centered care and really focus on helping individuals, helping their families to achieve improved health. And that's really including medical, including psychiatric, counseling, and supportive services. They really just want to focus in on effective treatment because that really makes recovery from behavioral health disorders possible. And most importantly, I have really discovered that they want to provide hope. So if you want to know more about Horizon Health Services, you can call their admissions office. That number is 716-831-1800 or check out their website at horizon-health.org. All right. Nora Leaders Project with Horizon Health Services, Jim Prosser. Love it. Enjoy it. Share it. Have a great one, everybody. I'll be talking to you soon. Having food to eat. That's kind of a necessary uh, part of Maslow's hierarchy. Sure. (laughs) But anyway, all right, Jim Prosser, we're going to get into this finally. (laughs) It was a good warm up of, I don't know, I've been here for quite some time now and it's a good conversation. And I got a mug. Yeah, yeah. I got this mug. I'm picking it up as if somebody can see this. Nobody can see it, but Jim is into some pottery and made me an awesome coffee mug, so. I'll have to post that up on the oh, thanks. I, I with the, with the episode and the website and everything else. But all right, so yeah, my point of like starting this project, which I kind of already told you, was to really take people in horizons and you know highlight their what their position is, mm-hmm. what their passions are, why they got into this, you know what you know brought you into this field, and 
sure. kind of details of why <laughs> you're doing what you do and you know what your involvement is with Horizons and everything else. So I guess we'll kind of start with a simple one of oh please wh- do <laughs> what uh what brought like brought you into this. I guess first, what's your position at Horizons? And then what brought you into this, and you know why you ended up getting into it. Sure. So I'm the supervisor for the treatment courts at Horizons. What I do is I go to the treatment courts that we work with and I manage the relationships with the judge and the coordinators as well as making sure patients are being represented the way that we're trying to have them represented, whether it be in the court reports or just their case as a whole. And I also act as the communicator between the court and the clinical staff. Okay. So... It's a, so you're kind of like that bridge between all of them as well then, okay. Yep. Yeah, it's an interesting piece. Uh, it's not something I thought I was ever going to be doing, and I kind of just landed in it, and it happened. So... Because you started off as a counselor. Yep. Yes. With Horizons, or were you, where, where were you before? No, I've always been with Horizons. I So I moved to Buffalo for college. Uh, I was originally going to Damon, and while I was at Damon, I met an individual who worked at Horizons and started talking to him and kind of used that connection to get my foot in the door. And I started interning with Horizons. I fell in love with the company. I I liked their philosophy a lot. I liked how they were going about helping people. And I decided, like, this is the company I want to be with. And I really just tried to figure out what can I do to help them. And so... That's how I ended up in this position because they said, well, I was doing counseling for a while. One day they called me up and said, hey, why don't you go do this? We kind of want to change what we're doing and we think that you would be a good fit for it. And I kind of went, why me? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's actually what I said to Anne was, why Why me? me?" Yeah. And she said, well, this this is why. And she went into, uh, I guess, the thought process they had. And yeah, so I've been doing that for the last two years and I, I really enjoy it. Because I was asking a couple people that, you know, that I'm closer with at Horizons, what your position with, because all I could find <laughs> on the internet really was just counselor. Yeah. Yeah. I probably don't have much information about myself. Yeah. So sorry. No, there isn't. Thanks for that, by the yeah. way. But, uh, <laughs> so I was curious as to, yeah, what your kind of role was in, in doing that. And I think that's, I think that's an important position to have. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting s- position because... I really didn't know much about it, and we didn't really know where we wanted to take it. So what happened was we had an individual who was doing it, and when they came to me, they said, we want to put someone who's a counselor in this position so they can make clinical decisions in the moment in Mm -hmm. the courthouse. They really didn't give me a ton of direction. They really just said, go do it and tell us what you think. And so I started doing it, and what started off as just me slowly grew until we kind of, I pulled in two more people full-time, and then a couple of people that are doing things partially, you know, one day a week or a few hours here. Mm-hmm. And that's just, yeah, that's where we're at today. It, yeah, it's an interest, interesting position. Not too many people really know what I do um, <laughs> because I think... Well, they're going to now. Well, I'm slowly learning it yeah. as I go along as well, right? So it's kind of like, okay, this is how I envisioned it. I've tried this. I found some things worked, some things didn't work. I'm learning about the courts. I knew nothing about the courts before mm-hmm. I started it. <laughs> so that in itself is a whole learning process and a curve as well. Sounds very familiar to me. Oh, you know a little <laughs> bit about that. <laughs> Just a little bit about it, yes. Kind of not, I don't want to say making it up as you go, because that sounds very unprofessional, but it is almost like making it up as you go, because you really, you got to 
in order to start a program that's never been started, you kind of have to make it up as you go to, like you said, to figure out what works and what doesn't work. I think the uh, the professional term would be learning as you go. There we go. Yes. Right. I think making it up sounds very very unprofessional. Yeah, but learning <laughs> as you go is important because mm-hmm. we should always be learning as we're going throughout life. You would hope so, right? Yeah. yeah. Ideally, yeah. Unless you're my dad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then he ain't learning shit. So. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so that's go- what did you go to school for? So well, originally um, I was going to school for physical therapy, so I was going to go to college to become a doctor of physical therapy. Then I switched and went into psychology for my undergrad and then master's social work. And that's okay. where I'm at now. Very good. What are some of the biggest things you've learned about the courts since you've been working with them? Oh boy. Um, I don't know how many bad things you can say about them on this recording, <laughs> but no, I, I, I'm I really, sure I'll agree with you. <laughs> no, I really don't have actually a lot of bad things to say about the courts. So I, I'll, I'll say this because I've said this before. I didn't like the the, the drug courts when I was a counselor, I found them very frustrating. Mm-hmm. And as I've, and this, you know what, we're, we're talking earlier about, about people who don't know the full picture and then they don't understand it. And what they need to do is they need to go learn it so then they can fully understand it. And that's kind of what happened with me. I started working with the courts and I, I understood how they worked. And then all of a sudden I went, wow, okay, this is how they're actually really helpful. And I think they're a phenomenal resource that we have in our community and they serve a great purpose we have to look at them for what they're doing what they're trying to mm-hmm. uh, accomplish and i think once you understand how the courts work they actually are, make a lot of sense if you go into them thinking that it's going to be a replica of counseling then you're going to get frustrated if you understand it as it is a monitoring program to help people and hold people accountable so they go to the counseling that they have to go to or perform the whatever the responsibilities that they perform, then it's much more beneficial. Yeah, I really think it comes down to learning it as a whole, understanding what they're trying to accomplish, and being open to understanding that people view things in different ways, and that's okay. Just because people view things in a different way doesn't mean they're wrong. Everything has value to it. You have to learn how to work alongside with it because we really are a team with the drug courts, right? We have so many people who are struggling with drug problems. We try to get them into treatment, and obviously if they don't show up to treatment, you can't really do much treatment, right? Yeah. It's literally impossible. Yeah. <laughs> There's no it's magical quite impossible, way. yes. Yeah. And so if you have a monitoring program that helps reinforce that motivation to go to appointments or go to whatever it is they're supposed to be doing, then you allows that opportunity for change to occur. So like, I don't know how familiar you would be with um, maybe like the stages of change. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, perfect. Yeah. yeah. If you look at someone who is contemplative, which may be a lot of people in the addiction process. They're very, I'd say majority of them are in the contemplation stage. Yeah. Well, everyone's in it at some point in time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, a large portion of what we work with. And if you think about really the only... Maybe not the only way, but one of the main ways to get someone from contemplation to preparation is to increase motivation, right? Increase the negatives of continuing that behavior and increase the positives of making change. It's how interventions work, mm-hmm. right? They, people say, uh, hey, I love you. You mean so much to me. And at the same time, if you don't go to rehab, I'm no longer going to give you rides, Um, And it's supposed to encourage people to go by saying your life will become more difficult if you don't go. So they go, fine, I'll go. And yeah, I think drug courts serve a great purpose in that where they can say, okay, if you don't do these things, this is going to be the consequence. If you do do these things, here's the result, which is you get a reduced sentencing or a reduced plea or, you know, whatever it is. 
So I, I think they definitely serve a purpose and they're phenomenal. Understanding what they're trying to accomplish is important. Yeah, I think that's 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 a good point. I think so. And I think that you hit the nail on the head when you said if you go in there looking at it as if it's therapy or a counseling <laughs> you know, group, it's not going to really work. It's not a treatment provider. It's there to motivate and to kind of get you and guide you to to change. I always people say all the time, oh, well, you can't force people to change. But my rebuttal to that is always, but you can influence people to change. Correct. And yep. so by doing things and saying things and saying, setting boundaries or saying, if you screw this up, you're going to go here. This is going to happen. You can influence people to change. And a lot of people who are, I've seen it happen a lot when people are in rehab who didn't want to be there. One experience might be months into their stay. Mm-hmm. Something hits them like, oh, all right. You know, and you can see that. And it happens quite often. I think that's why it's so important to kind of always be there to guide and be an influencer as much as you can. Yeah. And it, well, and it's all part of a wheel mm-hmm. if, in a sense of uh, if you were to say, okay, well, what helps someone be successful in recovery? And you were to break it into like a little pie chart. You'd have, okay, maybe you have treatment in this slice and you have uh, family in this slice and you have, I don't know, you know, I'm just gonna make this stuff up, uh, career you know, passion Mm -hmm. in this slice. And then you have, you know, the treatment court, which would be in this slice. And it's saying, okay, treatment court alone is not going to keep people sober, just like medication alone doesn't keep people sober or, uh, whatever, you know, one singular thing isn't the cause for people getting clean. It's yeah, it's the combination of all of it put together. So if you can have that opportunity to be a part of something that helps keep you accountable and helps motivate you, then yeah, it can be a awesome. resource. People don't always look at it like that. <laughs> no, they don't. But really, I think it's important to share that with people because I think it is in a huge way and very important to look at it that way. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure those people because who some gonna... people, yeah, well, some people, you know, even in recovery, a lot of people want that one and done thing, and taking just Suboxone is oh, sure. and not doing anything else, uh, it's going to fail every time. Yeah, you're not going to be successful by just being an MAT and not working on anything else in your life. So you need that. You know, everything is a little piece of everything almost. And yep. some people, you know, will go to AA and 90% of the recovery will be AA and 10% of something sure. else or, you know, vice versa, whatever it is. And for me, that's one of my biggest messages I want to push out is everybody thinks that the path that worked for them is the path that mm. worked for everybody else and try to push it on everybody else. And that yeah. is one of my biggest pet peeves. I, I agree with that. Because wholeheartedly. Yep. it's absolutely awful when we start going to something with an attitude of, well, this worked for me, so therefore it must work for you. Because that, that's taking away the individual piece mm-hmm. of the treatment. Obviously, there's some pieces that can correlate, right? You can say, hey, having sober supports, right? People I can talk to helped me. And I think that's going to be something that's probably universal, right? Like, I don't think anyone's going to suffer from having no. positive influences yeah. in their life. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, like, I'm sure there's some, too, some overlaps. Why'd you relapse? I have too many positive influences <laughs> in my life. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there's always going to be some things that are going to be similar across the board. But as soon as people start going, oh, well, yeah, this is what worked for me. So therefore, you just have to do this exact same thing and it'll work for you is not always the case. It mm-hmm. might be the case sometimes, but it's not the only solution. There's multiple solutions. Yeah, and that's super important. That's like I said, that's one of my my biggest kind of pet peeves I have. Nice. But what kind of um did you have any like addiction, substance use or mental health in your 
you know, your your past, your family that motivated you to get into this? Or is it just kind of a genuine, I want to help and work with people kind of thing? Because you're going both. for therapy. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was both, realistically. Um because I, I, yeah, you have to have the genuineness to want to do it, mm-hmm. right? There's you don't get in this career for the money, right? Yeah, if, if I <laughs> if I wanted the money, I would have stayed and become you know the physical yeah. therapist, right? Uh, they, they they pay slightly better mm-hmm. than social work, but no. So for me, the reason I got into it was my own addiction, and for me, I was very fortunate to get sober at a very young age. And what happened was I realized I wanted to give back and help, which is originally why I chose the physical therapy piece, and when I had completed a few internships for the physical therapy, I realized that they didn't have the communication and that personal interaction that I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And so obviously being in recovery at the time, I went, well, if I want to talk to people and I want to help people and I already have this piece, why not do that? <laughs> it was something that I was passionate about. And I wanted to help people. And I, I, you have to have that genuineness about it because you can't, you can't sustain yourself in this field of, if you don't, I think the burnout rate is something like 80%, right? Of counselors will burn out. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be a genuine desire to see people be successful in order to stay in the field. For me, yeah, it was the personal piece. Um, there was pieces of it in the family as well, more in my extended family. But for me, it was my own. You're kind of hard pressed to find anybody who hasn't had at least some kind of extended family. Correct. Or, you know, friends or something. It's, it's very... Uh challenging to actually find somebody who hasn't been affected by substance use or mental health in some yeah. way shape or form well yeah and it's, so we're talking about the uh the piece that you're saying that bothers you when people say like oh well this is how i got sober so therefore this, this is what is you need it. to do yeah and so piggybacking off of that one of the things that i i think is so unfortunate is when people will say that and i think to myself of because I, I don't typically tell clients i i'm in recovery um Part of it is I think about how drugs have changed so much over the years, right? So now we're in the middle of this opiate epidemic. When I was getting sober, opiates didn't really exist. and I mean, they did exist, obviously, but yeah. it wasn't at the point where it was at now. It's one of those things where I guess I think about how to, yeah, just to look for something like, oh, this person's in recovery, so therefore I should listen to them. I've always seen it as a silly concept because their drug of choice could be completely different. Their lifestyle, you know, mm-hmm. like their use could have been completely different. So therefore, their recovery is going to be completely different. Yeah, for me, it was one of those things I typically don't tell people because I want people to actually listen to me because they hear what I have to say. At least when I was doing the counseling, they would hear what I have to say and say, hey, I buy into that. I believe that. I want to go try that. I think that would make sense. You know, I think that could help me because I, I think that is important is to whatever you're doing to try to change, to buy into it and really believe that this can help and this yeah. does work because if you don't buy into it, I don't think it will be successful. Well, you kind of answered the question I was going to ask you, like, why don't you share with people that you're in recovery more? For, yeah, that reason. And well, that's... Uh, and the, the, the other piece of it is, so when I got into counseling, I said, I want to be the best counselor I can be. And so I, I pushed myself really hard to do that. And part of it is if you just immediately go in and tell people, oh, well, I'm in recovery, you, you will get a benefit to the therapeutic process, right? People are going to trust you more. People are going to feel like they can relate to you more. But what it does is it, it inhibits your ability as a counselor because you can build trust with patients. You can build rapport and a sense of, yes, I understand what you're going through. By just immediately telling people that, you're not challenging yourself to develop those skills. So the skills that you need to create rapport are going to be beneficial across the board. And you're going to have to have it at some, well, pretty much every point. Yeah. And so, that, yeah, that's a 
big reason for why I didn't tell people. Um, I would occasionally if it was people were asking and it was something I, someone I've worked with for a long time and some patients kind of figured it out just by the way I'll talk, but not typically just because if you come out, yeah. which I think that's, I mean, from what I've kind of read and little, I think that's more probably discouraged in therapy and counseling as much as it is like in the recovery coaching and peer advocacy aspect. I think that experience is what draws people to more of the peer advocacy part and the recovery coach, as opposed to therapy, it's more of a listen and it's about them mm-hmm. well, you know, correct. sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it always comes back to, are you sharing it for the client? Why are you sharing or, it? Right. Or are you sharing it because you don't want to put the work in to build rapport? <laughs> <laughs> right. You're absolutely right. It's therapy is about listening to the individual, hearing what they have to say and providing feedback and direction and doing so in an appropriate intervention. It's not saying, oh, well, here's what I tried. Let's have you try it, <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it doesn't work like that. Or I guess uh, it typically doesn't work. It like typically that. doesn't. No, no. I, I mean, you see it every once in a while because obviously that's what like the, the sponsor thing is. Correct. Yeah. A lot of people anyway, I shouldn't say every sponsor is like this, but so many people in AA and NA are do everything I say when I say it you know, sure. and do that. And this is how I did it. And this is how you're going to do it. And well, and there's a benefit to that. And sometimes it works out. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't. Right. Yeah. I mean, so if we're talking about self-help, I think there's a benefit to that because you're not a therapist mm-hmm. and there's a lot of poor decision making that happens in early recovery. <laughs> and so having someone just be like, Hey, shut up and listen can be beneficial for mm-hmm. the patient. Uh, as a therapist, you can't tell someone to shut up and listen. No, no, right? that's probably not recommended. <laughs> no, it's not encouraged at least. <laughs> so it's one of those, where, yeah, I mean, sponsor, like we were talking earlier about that wheel mm-hmm. and there's all the different parts, right? Drug court plays a part, therapy plays a part, like sponsorship plays a part. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's great that people can go to someone and say, hey, look, just tell me what to do. And that person can be like, yep, here's what you're going to do. I think that has its place. It's not therapy, meaning it's not in the therapy world yeah but it's it can be therapeutic if that Mm -hmm. makes sense yeah no it makes perfect sense so when you uh you know you get up in the morning you get into work what does like a typical day look like for you because i know you said you don't have an office right yeah um you're traveling all over do you go to you know all sorts of different counties are you just in area niagara yeah just area niagara okay really it depends on the day but i do have a set schedule in terms of each day of the week i go to a different court or sometimes multiple courts so the average day for me would be going to a court. Typically, I get in, I have different roles in different courts, but I might you know, start setting up the toxes or just helping get the court ready for the day. And then I usually will check in with the coordinator if we have to review cases that are going to be presented at the ju- with the judge that day. I'm going to go over problem cases. We're going to make sure we're at least on so the same page, same page with everything. And then you know, just running court. Court is really probably the easiest part of my day when a court is actually running mm-hmm. because that's the point where I just sit back and record what happens. What's going on. So if a patient goes in front of the judge and the judge says, you know, okay, we're doing this, just writing that down. and You record that. Yep. Okay. If, if it's significant, right? If the judge says, yeah. great job. Okay. I'm not, I'm not the uh, <laughs> stenographer writing down everything, but <laughs> if a client's getting sanctioned, whether it be increased self-help or jail sanction, I'm just going to relay that message back to the counselor or if something gets addressed where the judge is saying, okay, you need to make sure you attend your appointments or, you know, comply with the tox call-ins, just relaying that information of, okay, this was talked about, this was... To their counselors and... Yep. Now, is it just 
people who are using Horizon for outpatient and you know services that you are obviously recording this information for. I'm of assuming. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it's one of those things where there are I don't know the equivalent of me mm-hmm. uh, for different agencies. Yeah. Different agencies send different representatives to the courthouses. Each court. Okay. Yep. And so you'd have you know the, me as the Horizon representative would be doing the Horizon patients. So the spectrum. And Correct. Yep. Whoever else is yeah involved. Okay. Yep. I dig that. That's pretty cool. I think that's an awesome, important thing. So say, I guess, for instance, somebody fails a tox and, you know, the court supervisors are there and the judge or whatever. Do you, like, I shouldn't say have a say in the decision, but do they, like, come to you for advice? You know, what do you think would help would work with this person? In in every court, whether it be I'm going to that court or just the Horizon representative in is going to the court. They will always listen to what we have to say, whether they will actually do it or not. Is well, different. agree yeah. with it and say yes. This is you know we concur with that, or they might say yes. I hear what you're saying, and we're going in this direction. And it's a little bit of both. So obviously the goal is to be on the same page, mm-hmm. and at the same time, not everyone views has you know has uh, the same view on recovery. And like I was saying earlier. Like, just because I have one view doesn't mean I'm right. Right or wrong. Yeah. Right. It's just my Things view. Things aren't that black and white. Well, yeah. correct. If, if it was black and white, we would literally just do recovery the exact same way for every mm-hmm. single person, right? Like, if we had an answer of, hey, this is the solution, we would just do that. We obviously don't. <laughs> so, therefore, we try different things. And when you're trying different things, people have different opinions. But, yeah, for the most part, we're typically on the same page. There's always the outliers. And even then, it's more of a discussion. And then we go, okay, well, we're going to go in this direction or we're going to go in this and direction. This is what we're going to do. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's a, a super important position to have because I think people in recovery need m- more people advocating for them. Like, you know, no, this person could use just some more counseling or more intensive outpatient as opposed to going behind bars. Sure. You know, and, and having just to deal with a sentence. And I, because I think we're in between this getting addiction or I should say substance use and, you know, mental health things out of the criminal justice system and into a more of a, hey, this is, you know, a disease. This is something, there's a different way to approach this other than locking people up. And yeah. I think we're in that like transition almost still of like getting it out so much. And I think it's important to have somebody in your position there to kind of advocate and at least help sway things in the direction that should be going. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you've got the opiate or the opiate epidemic. And with that, we're trying to make a lot of changes because we're saying, okay, clearly the way we've done treatment the last... 30, 40 years. Isn't working. Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, thanks for you saying it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not working. Uh, and so it's one of those things of saying, well, what can we do now? And whenever people go through that process, it's a saying, okay, it's an adjustment period. And I think the courts are going through that. And one of the things I've really learned from being in the courts is none of the judges are looking to sanction people in terms of jail sanctions. They really truly do use that as a last resort. A lot of times they're saying, okay, well, what else can we do? And there's very, it's almost limited in how much they can do, right? If you think about like, what, mm-hmm. can, a, what can a court really do? Well, they can increase the amount of self-help that you're required to go to. You can increase the amount of groups that you're going to at your treatment provider. Increase jail time. Or <laughs> send you inpatient or send you to jail. And it's kind of like, okay, those are the options. So you sit down and you go, okay, well, which one do we do now? It's not always an easy decision. No, especially if somebody has failed inpatient 
two or three times, gotten sure. kicked out. If they keep failing toxins at their intensive outpatient, you know, they're not showing up to groups. I mean, what other options do you have, you know, at the end of the day sometimes? Yeah. It's tough because you're going back to it's so different for everybody else. Like jail for me, for sitting in jail for almost two months, was one of the greatest things that could have <laughs> happened to me. Yeah. It really could have. I needed to be shoved alone and stuck with my guilt and shame. I had the, you know, the introspection and the self-education to learn how to find my way through that guilt and shame. Not a lot of people do. Sure. And for me, that was the most important time. That's when I had, all right, I'm done feeling sorry for myself. I'm done, you know, expecting the world to give me something because my brother and sister died when I was 15. Like, I'm done. I'm not living in self-pity anymore. I can't or else I'm just going to stay like this. So I needed that time alone to be in jail. But so many people, Mm -hmm. it's not beneficial. I've seen people crack in two days in jail. That that light bulb moment can go off at any moment. It Mm -hmm. can happen all across the board. So, you know, for a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, some people, they do have that experience in jail mm-hmm. where it just clicks and they go, you know what? Like this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. Whereas I've had people who I would send them to like their third inpatient. And I actually, I remember one case specifically, I was a newer counselor at the time. And I remember like I was going through, through the, the referral and in the back of my head, I'm going like, well, what's really going to be different this time around? Like they've done this. Is, it was like the third inpatient in under a year. And they, they didn't want to go, but probation or parole at the time, I think, was making them. And What was his name? I'm just <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they ended up coming back, and it was. The light bulb finally clicked. Mm-hmm. And we would talk about it in session, and I would ask, like, what really, like, what happened? Because I wanted to know, because I wanted to duplicate that with my other cases. Yeah. They're like, I don't know. You, you can't, yeah. Right. They're like, it just, it finally occurred to me, like, I actually have a drinking problem. They're like, I don't know why I didn't do this beforehand. I didn't. I don't know why I didn't get it's it. It's amazing but, how it happens. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, and people have those light bulb moments in different places. So sometimes it's jail. Sometimes it's impatience. Sometimes it's I don't know walking down the street and it just kind of hits you like, well, this is silly. Maybe I should just stop doing this. <laughs> and you know, and it's a <laughs> it would be a fortunate way of having it happen. But <laughs> there's a I forget her name. It's a comedian. She shares a story about her meth addiction. And she goes into some pretty gruesome details of where her addiction took her. And she wraps it up with, she's at this pretty much dark, dark place. And she kind of just like looks around and is like, huh, maybe I just shouldn't do this anymore. And she stopped and she went to rehab. She stayed sober. I remember hearing her tell her story. It was one of those things where I went, wow, like, I wish that happened more frequently. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Where people were just like, hmm, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. Why am I doing this? Yeah. And I wish it happened more. Unfortunately, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I think it's almost like building more of a self-awareness each time you go through it. Some people, I mean, unfortunately, I think it's important to face the fact that some people are going to not get clean. No matter how hard they, in quotes, kind of try, you know, there's going to be a percentage of people who don't get clean. Yet. <laughs> yet. Is the hopeful but that's what. But that's but the I, attitude I you have to saying. take, though, you yeah. know, is like, yet. You yeah. know, it's not like you, you can't give up because you don't get to decide what that who that person is. Well, and that's what I was about to say, like, because you're obviously right. Some people won't change. And at the same time, we don't know who that person no. is. So you have yeah, no you, idea. You can't give up the hope because some people will struggle for years and years and they All will eventually get it. And right. And so you can't give up. You can change it up by saying, mm-hmm. okay, clearly this intervention is not working. We need something different. But yeah, I don't think you can give up because... You never know who that person is. There's no way to identify this is the person who can change and this is the person who can't no. change. So you just treat it all the same. And you hope you get it as much change as you possibly can. All the same, but different. 
Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's it's just such a weird, so many different aspects of substance use that are so weird and different from every everything else and any other kind of disease or sickness there is out there. Yeah. And there's well, just... There's a lot of different work being done on it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we've talked about how, obviously, like, I don't I don't have the answer for addiction. You don't have the answer for addiction. But then even if you take it to a bigger picture, like, America doesn't have the answer no. for addiction. The world. Correct, yeah, yeah. And you start looking at different countries and the different things they're doing. And obviously, different countries have different approaches. And I think it's actually, that is probably actually a more important piece that we should, probably should be focusing on is looking at what's work, working throughout the world. Mm-hmm. And looking at how can we start changing our models to adapt for that. So if you look at like uh, Singapore, a big piece that they work on is integration into the community. Like earlier when we were setting up, we were talking about purpose in life Mm -hmm. and how it's important to have purpose in recovery. And Singapore really has focused on trying to help people find focus so I think they have a whole bunch of well, they, they they have a whole bunch of uh, grants set up for people who it's a work program. They will go and get a job in something that they want they to actually do. Want to actually do, and what will happen is the country works with the company and says we will supplement portion of this individual's income. So you can pay them less, and you save money, and you benefit from it. I have heard about this, yeah. and it's one of those things where. Obviously, I mean that that alone is not the answer for addiction. No, that's a huge, a huge piece. Helping people find purpose in life and saying, "Yes, this is what I have to wake up for." If you're doing a job that you don't have any interest in, you're not passionate about, you don't care about, you're not going to be so concerned about trying to be productive enough to keep the job and wake up in the morning and go to work and do those things. So, I do think it's an important piece. Like I said, it's obviously not the only piece. and No, I th- well, it goes back to that whole c- connection and, again, mm-hmm. had purpose and connection, having that to the world. And I think it's important to feel that connection and feel that purpose. And, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a huge part of um, helping and changing people who are suffering with substance use and mental health, obviously. I, I forget the researcher's name. I want to say, like, Sebastian, maybe. I forget. I don't know. He's a ca- Canadian researcher, and he was doing a lot of work with animals and uh, drug addiction. Mm-hmm. And so he was focusing on mongooses and rats, I believe. I remember the rat part. And what he did was he created the, the rat, the rat park. park. Yeah, yeah, the environment where if you have something that you find fascinating and interesting and loving and you no longer have the need to escape. Mm-hmm. And so therefore you stop searching for that. And yeah, the rats would not become addicted to the drugged water. They would sometimes occasionally use it, but they never used it compulsively. They never became addicted to it. And they most certainly didn't use it until they were dying like they were in the previous cases. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I really do think that stresses the, the importance of you need that connection. You need to treat the addiction as a whole of, okay, yes, you need coping skills, which is an important part of recovery. You also need to look at what are you changing in your life? What are you doing as a different person? So we talked about, you know, drug court and how it's beneficial one of the beneficial pieces to drug court is it tries to help people change and hold them accountable by being honest because honesty is a huge piece of relationships right like if you lie to someone consistently they're less likely to be your friend absolutely (laughs) yeah Yeah. right i mean you don't want to hang out with people who lie to you all the time so if you're damaging your relationships that's obviously not being connected if you're being honest and open you're more likely to have positive connections court is a trying to reinforce a piece of that by saying, okay, if you're honest and you tell us that you used before 
you get caught, you don't go to jail. You don't get a jail sanction. You might get increased self-help or increased groups, but you won't do that. You're not going to jail. Yeah. Right. And they're trying to reinforce the behavior of this is what you might call uh, sober behavior as opposed to using behavior. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're trying to you know, That's produce. huge. Yeah. There's uh, this clinical psychologist I really love talks about just lying in general and how you lie once about one little thing. Even that can give you like this dopamine rush. And mm-hmm. it becomes more difficult and more difficult to even, I mean, even this is even kind of outside of addiction, it becomes more difficult to break lying as soon as you start. Yeah. You get like this little rush. Oh, I got away with it. Wow. This is exciting. And, you know, because some people lie about nonsense. Sure. You know, yeah. all the time. Like, oh, I love that band. Like, why the hell did you just lie yeah. about that? You know? The reality so, is you've never heard the band in your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting. I'm, you know, it's encouraging to hear and be able to have this conversation with you because I I have to I catch myself all the time just bashing the criminal justice system. <laughs> I really do. I just dealing with, you know, what I've gone through being my first defense and everything. It's just dumbfounding to me. I'm glad that we have people in programs that are like, hey, you know, that's not, you know, I know this person a little bit at least and you have at least more of an in-depth view of what it's like and can sway things in different ways. But Well, I don't know how much I can sway, but... <laughs> well, you can <laughs> at least plant the seed. Too much credit. You can plant a seed and at least get people to think about something, which is important. Sure. Yeah. There's uh, an interesting piece I think about, and sometimes I'll say this to clients if I have the opportunity. The way you know a judge cares is they actually haven't put you in jail. Because the easiest for the thing for them to do is just put you in jail. Right. Like, so you're saying, you know, this, this uh, judge has your file in front of her or your, yeah, your file in front of her and she's looking at it and she can go, okay, she can put you in jail four to six years or she can give you an opportunity to try to change. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. The way you know the judge cares is they're not just immediately going, okay, go do your time. Going in jail. Right. Because that's the easiest thing for them to do. Mm-hmm. Right. They just sign a piece of paper. The harder thing for them to do is to consistently meet with you week after week or, you know, however often it is you have to go and try to create some semblance of change with people who may not want to be there, <laughs> who have resentments <laughs> towards them, who might not always be the, you know, the most respectful, the mm-hmm. nicest people, or whatever it is, right? And the fact that the judges continue to come back week after week and continue to take people you know, on their caseload and continue to see people and continue to say, hey, look, if you do these things, I will reduce your sentencing, right? Like that is how you know someone truly cares. Because a lot of times I hear people say, oh, the judge doesn't care. It's like, no, I mean, they care. Yeah, I would say definitely in drug court, that's definitely more true. Um, yeah, I, I should be saying I'm, I'm speaking from a drug yeah. court perspective. Any judge could just be like, you're going to jail. Yeah. You know, screw you. Yeah. And, and it, it's easy. Yeah. Right? I mean, they, that's they just, the easiest thing. They literally just matter what you say, what you do. I have my decision. You're going to jail. And yeah. No, that's a great point. I have yeah. to remind myself of that because she could have sent me away for a long time if she wanted to. Sure. So. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Whatever. Thanks for making me see the bright side, Jim. Always. <laughs> you know, I guess, I guess that's the uh, the piece of the therapy where the therapist is still in me that wants people to see the positive and mm-hmm. still say like, hey, like this is a, a good thing. Uh, you know, drug courts still are trying to help. You might not agree with that form of help, but they are still trying. <laughs> Yep, and that that's important. I'm glad. To, I'm really like I kind of said in the beginning of this. It's awesome to see how things are kind of slowly changing, and not just strictly being, "Oh, you're a drug addict, go to jail." Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm glad to see there's some give there a little bit to really want to try to motivate and influence change in people. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, it really is. I mean, because for me, I've always thought about how people talk about the, the need for a higher power. For a lot of people, that's God, but I've never really considered higher power to mean God. Higher power would just mean hope, 
mm-hmm. you have to have hope that you can believe that you can change because typically when you're in addiction you've had ups and downs and maybe you're in a rock bottom and you're thinking to yourself well how can i possibly get out of this and a lot of times people don't believe in themselves so they have to have hope that something else can help give them the strength to make these changes Mm-hmm. For some people, it's a higher power, and sometimes it's God. Sometimes it's maybe court <laughs> giving them the hope of, hey, I can do this. Maybe it's treatment. Maybe it's their sponsor. Maybe it's whatever. Yeah, I really do believe that it's important to, one, believe that you're it's possible for you to actually create change, but also to believe that that strength can come from other places when you don't always have that strength. I think psychologically, we almost need hope to function as a human being that there can be something down the road that can change even if you're a pessimist you're still breathing there's still some kind of hope down there that you know all right maybe this could change maybe this could get better and i think you kind of try to have to build that up in people as you are kind of you know working with them and moving along yeah and when it's identifying the changes that they have been able to make Mm -hmm. so as people go through the process especially you know if, if, if we're looking at drug courts, people go through pro- the process and then you start pointing out the positives that, that they have done and then you start to reward it, right? So maybe people are coming to court every single week and then it gets bumped every two weeks, every three weeks, so once a month. Yeah, it's identifying the positive behavior that they have changed to one, point out that change to them because they might not have noticed it. And then two, to reinforce the hope of, yes, you are capable of doing this. You can create change in your life. It's maybe your life has been X, Y, and Z for the last five, 10 years. And at the same time, it does not have to be that way mm-hmm. forever. It might be difficult, but it doesn't have to be exactly like that forever. That's awesome. That's a great point. And kind of the, to wrap this up with you, this is how I always end it. It's the whole, you're about to die and you have one last thing to say to the world. You know, what advice would you give up? Don't give up, right? Don't, don't give up. And yeah, keep looking at the things that have worked. Every single day, you're... You have done something positive each day, right? As long as you're living, you've done something right. And so you already have the skills you need to be successful. What it comes down to is looking at what are you already doing that's working and how can you increase the frequency at which that's happening? Awesome. I love it. Thanks. What's your favorite color? Blue. Blue? Yeah. Food? Mm, Mashed potatoes, maybe some steak, (laughs) some gravy, throw a few sweet peas in there. Favorite band? (laughs) Ooh, I love Rise Against. Um, I, Rise Against, what was that? That's an early 2000s rock band, it is. right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, that's, I was going to say it's a bit of a throwback, but yeah, probably my yeah. favorite band. All right, awesome. Well, thanks for sitting down with me, man. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. I could, I could have kept this probably going. You're one of those people I could have easily talked to for another hour. So, Oh, anytime. But I'm already going to get in trouble at this length. I was, I was kind of wondering. I was not sure when we're supposed to cut off, so <laughs> I'll let you do it. All right, brother. Thanks, man. Yep. Okay, everybody, thank you for listening to this episode. Once again, this was the Know Our Leaders Project with Horizon Health Services, Jim Prosser, who is the supervisor for the treatment courts. To get in touch with Horizon Health Services, you can call their admissions office at 716-831-1800 or visit their website at www.horizon-health.org. Thank you very much, guys. This is Sean Cudahy from Room 9. And I will be talking to you very, very soon. Stay strong. Be encouraged. Don't give up. Learn from your mistakes. That's all I got. Peace.